electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market side in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. The Dow and S&P closing in on all-time highs. Inflation seemingly back under control. Yet the talk on Wall Street and Main Street about a coming recession and rate cuts. Why the data disconnect? We'll debate that. Plus, hospitality hot streak from hotels to cruise lines to airlines and more. These stocks are rocking like the consumer's going to keep on knocking. Is there still time to check in on this trade? And later, flying high. Boeing jumping to its best level in more than two years. We'll look at the industrial surge and ask how long will the good times last? I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, and special guest trader Rebecca Patterson, former chief strategist at Bridgewater. And we are waiting for President Biden to begin a news conference with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Once that starts, we'll go straight to it. But in the meantime, actually, we're going to stay right here because we're expecting this to happen uh, any moment now. We were just discussing before, you know, the, the reaction when we started this war, when we, not we started, but we started funding the war and the war started happening was that oil went higher, et cetera. What if we knew the war was going to end tomorrow? What do you think the reaction would be, Rebecca? I mean, a lot of it will depend on how the war ends tomorrow. But let's just hypothetically say funding winds down. There's some agreement between the two sides. I think knee jerk, at least you're going to see materials higher, literally picks mm-hmm. and shovels. Um, because there's a huge amount of reconstruction to happen. There's a big question in my mind, who pays for that? Yeah. Karen? I was, it's along the same lines. I was thinking, well, the knee-jerk reaction to when we got into the war was oil. Oh, hang on to that thought. We are watching President Biden and President Zelensky walk in. Let's listen in. President Zelensky, it's an honor to welcome you back to the White House. When President Putin launched his brutal total invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, and Russian tanks rolled over the border toward Kyiv. There were those who thought Ukraine wouldn't survive for a month. So no one, no one should forget that for you to be here today, again today, nearly two years later, and for Ukraine to be stand strong and free is an enormous victory already. Putin has failed, failed his effort to subjugate Ukraine. The brave people of Ukraine have defied Putin's will at every turn, backed by the strong and unwavering support of the United States and our allies and partners of more than 50 nations, 50 nations in Europe and the Indo-Pacific. And Ukraine will emerge from this war proud, free, and firmly rooted in the West unless we walk away. The American people can be and should be incredibly proud the part they played in supporting Ukraine's success. We'll continue to supply Ukraine with critical weapons and equipment as long as we can, including $200 million I just approved today in a critical needed equipment, additional air defense interceptors, artillery, and ammunition. But without supplemental funding, we're rapidly coming to an end of our ability to help Ukraine respond to the urgent operational demands that it has. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. We must, we must, we must prove him wrong. 
The United States and Congress must, as I asked last week, and this, it's stunning that we've gotten to this point. You know, we need to fully appreciate, fully appreciate how it's wrong, how this is being viewed around the world and being used by Russia. Russian loyalists in Moscow celebrated when, when Republicans voted to block Ukraine's aid last week. The host of a Kremlin-run show literally said, and I quote, well done, Republicans. That's good for us, end of quote. Let me say that again. This host of a Kremlin-run show said, well done, Republicans. That's good for us. That's a Russian speaking. If you're being celebrated by Russian propagandists, it might be time to rethink what you're doing. History, history will judge harshly those who turn their back on freedom's cause. Today, Ukraine's freedom is on the line. But if we don't stop Putin, it will endanger the freedom of everyone almost everywhere. Putin will keep going, and would-be aggressors everywhere will be emboldened to try to take what they can by force. Mr. President, I'll not walk away from Ukraine, and neither will the American people. A clear bipartisan majority of people across the United States and in Congress support your country. They understand, as I do, that Ukraine's success and its ability to deter aggression in the future are vital to security for the world at large. And I have repeatedly made clear from our first day in office, we also need Ukraine to make changes to fix the broken immigration system here. We also need Congress to make the changes to fix the broken immigration system here at home. My team is working with Senate Democrats and Republicans to try to find a bipartisan compromise, both in terms of changes in policy and provide the resources we need to secure the border. Compromise is how democracy works, and I'm ready and offered compromise already. Holding Ukraine funding hostage in the attempt to force through an extreme Republican partisan agenda on the border is not how it works. We need real solutions. I also asked Congress for funding for Israel to take on Hamas and confront multiple other threats backed by Iran in the wake of the October 7th assault. National Security Advisor Sullivan will travel to the region this week and meet with the Israeli War Cabinet, as I have met with, to emphasize our commitment to Israel, as well as the need to protect civilian life and ensure more humanitarian assistance flows and reaches into Gaza for Palestinian civilians. Secretary Austin will also travel to the region this week to step up the international efforts to protect the free flow of commerce through the Red Sea. The entire world is watching what we do. So let's show them who we are. America stands for freedom today, tomorrow, and always. America stands against tyranny and against oppression. And America stands with the people of Ukraine. Thank you again for being here today, Mr. President, and thank you for everything Ukraine is doing to hold the line for liberty in the world. The floor is yours, Mr. President. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mr. President, dear journalists. I'm glad to be here and personally thank you and tell you how Ukraine values what we've achieved together, defending life and freedom. In Ukraine, 
we are fighting for our country and freedom and also in Europe we say for our freedom and yours and this motto resonates not only in our country not only in our hearts not only in Ukraine but also in Poland and Baltic states Moldova and others when freedom is strong in one country it is strong everywhere when it burns in one soul it presents its merits to to others ukraine's have twice ukrainians have twice led revolutions this century defending freedom for nearly two years we have been in a full-scale war the biggest the biggest since world war ii fighting for freedom we stand firm no matter what putin tries he hasn't won any victories thanks to ukraine's success success in defense other european nations are safe from the russian aggression unlike in the past ukraine can now tackle the russian dictatorship so our children and other nations won't have to shed their blood and sacrifice lives defending against russian aggression we've already made significant progress we've shown that our courage and partnership are stronger than any russian hostility and we have freed 50 percent of the territories russia occupied after february 24th and we won the black sea and are reviving our economy thanks to maritime exports ukraine's 5% economic growth this year proves our effective partnership. And we've shown no, no Russian missiles can overdo the powerful American Patriot systems. Thank you very much. And even during war, we are reforming our country and strengthening our, our institutions. Today, President Biden and I discussed how to increase our strength for next year First, air defense and destroying Russian logistics on Ukraine's land. Mr. President, thank you very much for your supporting, supporting us. And in these areas, like our victory in the Black Sea, we aim to win the air battle, crashing Russian air dominance. This will, this will intensify our ground advances in 2024 with our control of the skies who controls the skies controls the war's duration and today i would like to thank of course for yet another significant defense package with our defenders value very much second yesterday i met with american american defense company leaders they advised us on how to make our defense industries work faster and more effectively thank you president biden for this important initiative we started with you together ukraine and america can strengthen democracy's arsenal and this is vital for other free nations and the u.s as it involves your companies technologies and technology advancement and job creation and it is important to know that two-thirds of American support for Ukraine remains and works in the United States. Third, I informed Mr. President that Ukraine has 
fulfilled all the recommendations of the European Commission regarding the preparation for a decision to start negotiations on Ukraine's accession to the uh, EU. And we constantly communicate with European leaders about our joint steps, sanctions, and political efforts to pressure Russia. American leadership is crucial, is keeping this unity together, a unity that serves the entire free world. And I thank America for new sanctions, and today we discussed Putin's further isolation and making him pay for his aggression. It's very important that by the end of this year, we can send very strong signal of our unity to the aggressor and the unity of Ukraine, America, Europe, the entire free world. Everything we talked about today will help us in the year 2024. Today's discussions in the White House and in Congress across both parties and both chambers with a speaker were very productive. And I thank you for the bipartisan support. As we approach Christmas, on behalf of all our Ukrainian families separated by war and all sons and daughters on the front, Ukraine's greatest wish is to near this war's victorious end. No one, no one but Putin wants, wants a prolonged war. We dream of a Christmas in the peacetime, of course, and we are working to turn our battlefield success into peace. And we are heading there together with you, and thanks, of course, to your support. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Thank you, America. Slava Ukraine. Thank you. Look, uh, we're going to alternate asking questions. We're going to ask a total of each ask two questions. I will ask the first question. Uh, I will ask. I will recognize the first question asker. <laughs> I'll ask a question to all, too. But um, uh, Danny Kemp. Um, thank you, Mr. President. Um, for President Biden, um, Ukraine's counteroffensive has, uh, has stalled in recent months. Uh, Congress is blocking aid, uh, and Vladimir Putin appears ready to just wait things out. Um, so, what is the strategy for the U.S. and Ukraine next year to try and turn this uh, turn this around? And if that fails, uh, at what point do you say to Ukraine, as a friend, uh, that it is perhaps time to start looking at peace talks? And for President Zelensky, um, welcome back to Washington. Um, can I ask you, did you uh, hear what you wanted to hear from Congress and from President Biden? Um, and, uh, or are you indeed more worried than when you got here? Thank you very much. Well, let me uh, answer the question first. Let's put this in perspective. Remember how far Ukraine has come. Russia has failed, failed us far in trying to erase Ukraine from the map and uh, subsume it into Russia. Ukraine has taken back more than 50% of its territory seized since February of 22. And it's pushed back Russian, the Russian Navy so Ukraine can export grain and steel to the world through the Black Sea. And thanks to the incredible courage of the Ukrainian people and the bipartisan support from our Congress, but it's not just American support. There are more than 50 countries, 50 countries helping Ukraine with military, economic, and humanitarian assistance. 50. The burden sharing, the U.S. has put up $75 billion, and our allies and partners have put up $100 billion. 
that more than 90 percent of our security assistance to Ukraine is being spent in the United States to provide weapons for Ukraine and replenish our stockpiles and build our industrial base. We need to ensure Putin continues to fail in Ukraine and Ukraine to succeed. And the best way for that to do that is to pass the supplement. Yeah. Yeah. Get an answer in Ukrainian, please. <clears throat> Thank you. First of all, I would like to add uh, to the words of Mr. President uh, Biden uh, uh, about successes. I think that uh, these were not easy successes. Nonetheless, they were quite serious. They were serious steps forward. Indeed, we gained victory on the sea. We destroyed ships of the Russian Federation. We throw the remnants of their fleet to Russian territorial waters. Yes, they uh, have something uh, in the Black Sea uh, in the vicinity of our temporarily occupied Crimea, but we are going to proceed this activity. Our guys destroyed 20,000 of Wagner mercenaries. These are serious terrorists who were massing everywhere on African continent, in Syria, in Ukraine. There were a lot of mass. And nucleus of this terroristic organization is not existing anymore. Yes, we had a lot of uh, problems, but nonetheless we were able to do this. Moreover, Russia were not able to seize uh, any part of our territory, any village, any town. I'm not talking about large cities. And we are going to proceed with this. It is good without saying that we have objective, we have clear plan, but if you allow me, I am not able to tell you in public uh, on the details of 2024 operations. If I heard what I want, I heard a lot. Surely I told what I wanted to. I feel and experience this support from President Biden administration, uh, from senators, and we have been talking with the speaker. Positive, but we know that we have to separate words and particular results. Result. Therefore, we will count on particular results. Thank you. Your turn to ask a question. Yeah, sorry. Telekanal Inter, please. Inter, please. Oh, thank you for taking my question. Dmitry Anopchenko, Ukrainian television U.S. correspondent. Uh, many Republican voices doubt the ability of Ukraine to win the war. Uh, Sandra Wans uh, recently even told that Ukraine need to cede some territories to stop fighting. Uh, to be very honest, have you even considered such a step to cede the territories to stop fighting? And Mr. Biden, could you please clarify the policy and of your administration, the strategy of your administration on Ukraine? Is it about helping the country to defend itself or to win the war? Because it's obviously such a difference. I will begin. Okay. So, first question. Your question is, if we are ready to give up our territories? The question is not only about our words or thoughts. The question is about for what we are ready and for what we are not. How 
Ukraine is able to give up its territories. That's insane, to be honest. We are mentioning God very often. It's not about Christianity. We have our people there, we have our families there, we have children there. That's part of Ukrainian society and we are talking about human beings. They are being under tortures, they are being raped and they are being killed. And those voices which offers to give up our territories they offers as well to give up our people. That's not a matter of territory, that's a matter of lives, of families, of children, of their histories. I don't know whose idea it is. But I have a question to these people if they are ready to give up their children to terrorists. I think no. We want to see Ukraine win the war. And uh, as I've said before, winning means Ukraine is a sovereign, independent nation and uh, that can afford to defend itself today and deter further aggression. That's our objective. Uh, Trevor, Reuters, Reuters. Thank you, sir. Um, first, a question for both of you. Um, given the Republican skepticism of the Ukraine effort, do you worry that a second term for President Trump would be the uh, end of an independent Ukraine? That's for both of you. And then for you, uh, President Biden, um, just an update, if you could, on the, the situation in Gaza, uh, on the reports that Israel has begun flooding Hamas tunnels, um, and just the, the offensive in southern Gaza generally. How long do you think that operation should last? Thank you. First of all, with regard to uh political support for Ukraine. There is a strong bipartisan political support for Ukraine. Small number of Republicans who don't want to support Ukraine, but uh, they don't speak for the majority, even the Republicans, in my view. We're in negotiations <coughs> to get funding we need, not to promise, uh, not, not making promises, but hopeful we can get there. I think we can. And you're right, the world's watching what we do would just send a horrible message to an aggressor and allies if we walked away at this time. And it would hurt our national security. Do you want me to answer the other question as well? With regard to... Want, say it again. Sorry, so the, the question was just, um, if you could talk a little bit about the Gaza operation, Israel flooding Hamas tunnels, and if you've had conversations with uh, Bibi Netanyahu about how long that operation should last. Well, I have had conversations with Bibi Netanyahu, and, uh, and uh, I want to make sure that uh, we don't forget uh, what we're doing here. We have to support Israel because they're an independent nation that's been, I mean, the brutality, the inhumanity, the way in which Hamas treated the Israelis, and I mean, raping and burning and beheading. I mean, it's just, just beyond comparison, beyond comparison. And uh, to anything else that I've seen since I've been here, and I've been around for a long time. But I think that uh, we have made it clear to the Israelis, and they're aware, that the, independent, the, the safety of innocent Palestinians is still of great concern. And so the actions they're taking must be consistent with attempting to do everything possible to prevent innocent Palestinian civilians from being, being hurt, murdered, killed, 
lost, et cetera. And uh, look, um, it doesn't uh, lessen the responsibility going after Hamas to innocent Palestinians and, and, uh, and Hamas. Uh, look, we have responsibility to protect citizens and ensure they have access to humanitarian assistance. That's why I've worked so hard with our Arab friends as well as the Israelis to get humanitarian assistance into Israel, literally getting up to 140 trucks loaded with gear, loaded with food, loaded with everything that is needed by the Palestinians, including fuel. So, you know, Israel has stated its intent to fulfill these responsibilities. Uh, it's very difficult. With regard to the flooding of the tunnels, uh, I'm not a little bit, well, there is assertions being made that there's quite sure there are no hostages in any of these tunnels, uh, but I don't know that for a fact. I do know that, though, every civilian death is an absolute tragedy, and Israel stated its intent, as I said, to uh, to match its uh, its words with uh, its intent with word with actions. That's why uh, that's why I was that's what I was talking about today. Question three. I uh, guess I asked that. No, I just asked. Your turn. Your turn. So, uh, addressing your question very quickly, uh, I've been talking a lot with representatives of both parties, uh, both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, proved uh, full-fledged support, and we will see, but before this, we've always been trusting in support of our strategic partner, the United States, and we will consider that it will continue in this way, and Ukraine will not remain alone against such a critical terrorist as the Russian Federation. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Yaroslav Dovopol, Ukraine Foreign News Agency, Ukraine. Next summer, uh, the United States will host uh, uh, an anniversary NATO summit, summit in Washington, D.C., which, which raises a lot of hope, especially for Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky, uh, what does the Ukrainian side expect from this summit? And uh, do you hope to hear direct invitation for Ukraine to join the alliance. And uh, President Biden, under what conditions is the United States ready to support the initiative of inviting Ukraine to be member member of NATO? Thank you. Thank you for your question. Uh, I will answer very quickly on this very complicated question. We are not allies till now. We are not we are allies, but we are not members members of NATO. So that's why I think I will pass this question to <laughs> our big friend, <laughs> President Biden. Look, I'm very proud that how strong and unified NATO has become, and now it's even larger. I. Uh, Putin wanted the finalization of NATO when I met with him in, uh, in, uh, in, in Geneva right after I was elected. And he's gotten the NATOization of Finland instead. And NATO will be in Ukraine's future, no question about that.
But we, as we said in Vilnius, Ukraine will become a member of NATO when all allies agree and conditions are met. Right now, we have to make sure they win the war. And, uh, you know, we launched a joint declaration of support alongside President Zelensky and the G7 leaders in Vilnius, outlining a long-term commitment to supporting Ukraine's defense needs. We also hosted a defense industry conference last week here in D.C. to get that critical work done. So it's a step at a time. Thank you all very, very much. This concludes the Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone. This concludes the press conference. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. We have been listening to President Joe Biden, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, just wrapping up their joint news conference at the White House. This is an important tour for President Zelensky. He needs, ba he needs aid very badly in the, uh, in the fight to maintain his country and the boundaries of his country. Let's go to Eamon Javers for the very latest. President Biden, Eamon, mentioned a small group of Republicans opposing funding. Of course, the context to all of this is we just came off of a bruising battle over the budget. Uh, fiscal responsibility concerns, and, and here we are uh, with President Zelensky asking for some more aid. Yeah, two small olive branches from the president to the Republican Party in that uh, set of remarks, Melissa. Uh, the first one was when uh, the president talked about uh, security at the border. That's the, the demand in the, the negotiations from the Republican side. They want to see border funding, more border security measures before they'll pass Ukrainian military aid. Uh, the president here is saying, uh, yes, we're going to look into that. Yes, we want to compromise with you on that. But no, let's detach that from this debate. So going a step or two toward the Republican position, but not all the way there. And then uh, one of the questioners there set up an opportunity for the president to uh, tee off on uh, former President Donald Trump, which you know in a political context, uh, President Biden would normally love to do. Here, uh, he restrains himself because uh, he knows that Vladimir Zelensky is courting Republican support, uh, including from a number of prominent Trump supporters uh, for that funding. So Biden doesn't want to get in the way of that. So fascinating to see uh, Biden inching toward those Republicans a little bit rhetorically here. And then from Zelensky's perspective, uh, I thought how fascinating to see him speaking in English to the American people. That's not something he was comfortable doing early in his tenure, early in the course of this war. Now he is because he knows how important it is for him to make the case directly to the American people to, to encourage them to tell their representatives in Washington to support this country and to, to support this war funding. Um, is it a foregone conclusion that this ask uh, will happen in terms of aid this time around, Eamon? Or is that uh, no, still completely up in the air? It's, it is up in the air. And there's, there's some, uh, a couple days now where they could get this done before the end of the year break, but it's looking increasingly like this is going to have to slip into January. And of course, the Ukrainian side wants the money approved and on the way as quick as possible. You, you saw some of the mentions of the defense industry here, Melissa, and I thought that was also strategic by both sides. Uh, you saw Zelensky mention the fact that he had met with American defense CEOs uh, on a number of occasions, including yesterday uh, in Washington, D.C., to ask their advice on how to improve the, the uh, Ukrainian military industrial complex. That's been a point that the Biden administration has been trying to make to those recalcitrant Republicans saying, look, 
yes, we're spending a lot of money on Ukraine, but a lot of it's going right to the U.S. defense sector. The money is staying in the United States. The weapons are going to Ukraine. Therefore, this is not really uh, a drain on the U.S. economy in the sense that you might think of pallets of cash being shipped to Ukraine might normally be. In this case, the U.S. defense industry benefits. And you saw Zelensky very keen to make that point uh, and talk about his meeting with those CEOs just, just yesterday here in Washington. All right, Eamon, thank you. We'll see you soon. Eamon yeah. Javers in Washington for us. We we're, were just having the short conversation prior to President Biden speaking. Um, if we knew that the war was going to end tomorrow for whatever reason, hopefully peace, <laughs> um, then what would happen? What would be, be the knee-jerk reaction? What are some of the things that you would look to in the markets that would happen, mm -hmm. Karen? And we were mentioning yeah. picks and shovels. That's right. Sort of well, I was saying the knee-jerk reaction when it did happen was oil went up mm -hmm. and then turned around. So I think the knee-jerk reaction would be down, but also shipping routes were just sent into a, you know, uh, I guess it was just a full-on panic because they had to try all different routes, and that meant more days in the water. That was more expensive. The reverse. Right. Go ahead. It's fascinating. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, historically, you'd say crude is going to collapse. Maybe that flight to quality in the form of the dollar, maybe that somehow reverses itself. Maybe see the dollar continues. I don't know the answer. I'll say this. I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, we all want it to happen. There seems no indication. I mean, it, in some ways, it seems like they're digging the heels in a bit more. I'll say this. Defense stocks, which have sold off, I think on valuation alone, continue to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, we'll turn to our in-house Russia expert, Tim Seymour, <laughs> um, for some insight here in terms I mean, it, it did sound like President Biden, at least, was pledging U.S. support till the very end, until Ukraine could be sure that its borders were secure. Um, that's, that's a... That's a He's going very far out here, um, so we'll see if that actually happens. But, but what are the implications here? What would, what would you have to assume Putin would be willing to do if that happened? I, I, look, I, I don't think Putin is backing down in, in any capacity. And, and it's also been shocking to me, uh, both in the last two years and even in the last five, uh, where there's been some kind of misguided support for Putin uh, and in and, and, and this country. And so, look, the, I think the, the follow through here, unfortunately, on some level, today's political theater. Um, it, it is about funding. It is about budget. It is uh, about the dynamics of a fiscal uh, process in the U.S. that, that really is as contentious as it's ever been at a time when when obviously we focus every single day on the fiscal dynamics as much as we ever have been. Uh, I'd get back to just the energy security issue. Um, I think what you've seen in the last 12 to 18 months is, first of all, OPEC plus non-OPEC uh, supply uh, coming into the market in the oil and the energy space uh, has never been stronger. Um, U.S. production is, is as high as it's ever been. Um, there's some real positives from this. Uh, Karen talked a little bit about just the dynamics around uh, both energy prices, but the inflationary elements of, of this, if there was uh, some type of a settlement, I think, are, are also, um, you know, this could provide additional relief. Um, think of what this meant for Europe. Think of what this meant for, for Germany. Um, but again, I, I, I would express my skepticism, too, and I, I don't think Putin is backing down. All right, we're going to take a break here. Coming up, we'll uh, take a look ahead to tomorrow's Fed decision and the markets on the doorsteps of new highs. Fast Money's back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Rising today after the latest CPI data showed inflation cooling in November from the previous month. The Dow closing less than 1% from an all-time high. This ahead of tomorrow's big Fed decision. Wells Fargo Securities expects a knee-jerk bullish reaction to that news. Mike Schumacher is the firm's head of macro strategy. Um, knee-jerk bullish, but I guess that implies that you don't think that's the right, right reaction. Probably not. Really, it's yeah. based on the idea, Melissa, that almost everyone we talk to thinks Jay Powell is going to come out and try to talk down the idea the Fed is going to ease soon. So the bar is really high. How can he possibly top that? I doubt he can. And actually, if you want to look at a recent example, go back to December 1st. He had an appearance down at Spelman College, and he didn't really sound dovish, but the market said, well, he wasn't super hawkish, so was off to the races. Bond yields down, equities up. Maybe it's not as dramatic tomorrow, but something sort of like that, I think, is on tap. Do you think that he will try to be super hawkish and just the markets just will not believe him no matter what he says? The problem is he's not a super hawk. He'll try to be hawkish, but in his core, he's not really a hawkish guy, in my opinion. So it's difficult for him to try to make that point and drive it home. I think that's the issue. Sorry, speaking of core, super core, which is one of the things they they talk about watching very closely, there seems to be some sort of reacceleration going on there. So we can talk about this number being cool, but the one number they seemingly look at is going the wrong way for them. Yeah, super core is ugly. I mean, if you look at the annualized rate over the last three months, I know it's a mouthful, it's above 5%. Now, the Fed's target is two, it's not five. Even if you look at core inflation, same math, annualized three-month rate, it's right around 3%. And in fact, it's been around 3% for the last four to five months. It's down a lot, but that really occurred during April, May, June, that time frame, not recently. So momentum, it's stalled. So one thing tomorrow that I, I would expect we'll see a change in the statement is around financial conditions. So last time they mentioned that financial conditions were tightening, clearly since they've been easing. So I would expect a language change it seems like they're making this a smaller issue. It's not front and center. But, you know, if we saw bond yields continue to come down, stocks continuing to rally, you said that might be the knee jerk tomorrow. When does it become a front and center issue to them? Or do you think it does? It's becoming a bigger concern. And when you think about bond yields coming down a lot, real yields in particular, that's the basic barometer of how tight policy is. So just to frame that a bit, when you look at the 10-year Treasury, real yields about 2%. And it's down from 250 plus not that long ago. That's a big move. It's still tight, but not nearly as tight. So the market's doing a lot of lifting for the Fed. But does the Fed want that lifting done right now? Or would it rather wait three months? That's the big question. Mm -hmm. So what's going to be the most important data for you? What do you think is the most telling? It's the press conference tomorrow. No question about it. So statement, fine. A couple words change, what have you. The dots are sort of interesting, but it's going to be what Jay Powell says and how the market really takes that. That's where the action is for us, Karen. But it really sounds like no matter what Jay Powell does, he's going to be interpreted as dovish. And, and with seasonality, 
working in the bulls' favor at this point, it, it seems like we're just going to be off to the right, which is back to the knee-jerk higher. It's tough. It's tough for him. He's, he's managed to out-hawk the market once or twice maybe in the last year, but it's a pretty, again, a pretty high bar to get over for him. So that, to me, is the big challenge. Yeah. Anything in PCE that will change, B, I mean, not PCE, sorry, PPI, which is the other part to the CPI, which will feed into, you know, the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation, PCE, to piece it together and get the PCE. Is there anything that we can learn not, that, not that too much, frankly. No. no. CPI told a pretty good story today, I think, as far as the overall pictures improve, but it's not really getting better faster. So I think that's the big takeaway for the Fed on the inflation front. So where do you think rates are in two months or three months? Yeah, I'd say pushing out toward the end of the first quarter, somewhat lower, but not a ton. So you think about the move in November. That was the express elevator straight down. Yeah. Now we're taking the escalator down kind of slowly. So 10-year Treasury yield, call it high threes, 390-ish, give or take. So 30 basis points lower than today. Not bad, but not a super aggressive move. And we think it's because people look at the comments, think about the comments from the central bankers. Even though they're not incredibly hawkish, they say, you know what, maybe they're not quite ready to ease. Maybe it's going to be a second half thing. And perhaps it's not April, May. Maybe it goes out to September or something like that. So that that easing in the market gradually gets pushed out, and that slows down the descent in yields. So do you think that the descent in yields is positive for stocks at that point, or no? Probably positive for risk in general. I mean, the okay. recent reactions have been yields down, stocks up. I'll defer to Chris Harvey as far as the details, but that, that mechanism seems in place. Okay. Michael, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thank Appreciate you for your it. patience today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Michael Schumacher. Um, you think yields go down, and that's not necessarily a good thing for risk. No, but I understand the mechanism stays mm -hmm. in place without question, especially in the middle of December when, you know, seemingly we're on autopilot here. So I get it. Michael's been spot on with this. But, you know, I will say if the Fed is true to their word, you know, some of the things that I saw today in terms of what they've been focused on, not me, should be concerning for them. So you said, you know, is he going to be hawkish? Will the market believe him? We're going to find out in the commentary in the Q&A tomorrow for sure. Yeah. I mean, housing, rent, uh, used car prices, uh, Tim, all higher. I mean, oil is working in our favor. Rates are working in our favor. But uh, what's your take here? Yeah, and I think that this conversation we're having is is inflation. Um, if inflation is falling and rates remain stable, this is the dilemma within the Fed. Are you becoming more restrictive? Uh, what the market saying is that inflation is falling faster than the economy. And, and um, I, I think we're all saying the same thing. There are some elements here of inflation, core, super core, whatever, aren't going anywhere. That's why the Fed really has to hold the line here. But uh, we get back to the equity market where I, I think we can continue to trudge higher. Uh, and, and if you look at uh, how that's manifesting in terms of risk, well, we're, we're about to be sub 12 on the VIX. I think we are sub 12 on the VIX. Um, so we're, we're at a place where uh, I think, again, if high rates were bad, um, low rates are supposed to be good. And I I know we all know that to some point uh, they become a problem, but they're not a problem. Um, and and I would just get back to the, the biggest stocks in, in the world that we know have been the big outperformers. Um, but but you are starting to see uh, after look equal weighted underperformed by 14 percent year to date. OK, so it really is really lagged. Um, we are seeing broadening. Banks look pretty interesting. Look at look at biotech also um, and other parts of, uh, I would say, slightly riskier uh, dynamics um, now up over the 200 day. You're seeing breakouts in certain parts of the market that this is the ammunition you need with a seasonal. Um, I don't I don't see what what stops us uh, between now and, and mid to end January. 
Coming up, Boeing, Boeing, gone. The aerospace giant trading at levels it hasn't seen in two and a half years. We'll take you inside the stock's climb to the stratosphere right after this. But first, super host heartache. Analysts checking out of Airbnb as next year's travel outlook turns gloomy. Where they see the stock going next, more Fast Money in two. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Airbnb dropping after a bearish call from Barclays. Analysts downgrading stock to underweight from equal weight, lowering the price target to $100 from $135, citing a cautious travel outlook for 2024. But nobody seemed to tell the other hospitality stocks, hotels, cruise lines, airlines, all continuing to rip higher and adding to big rallies over the last few months. Marriott and Hilton also hitting all-time highs. So where does the travel trade go? Um, I think what was important in this note, Tim, was that the reasoning behind this was competition from hotels. So hotels may be winning um, at Airbnb's expense. They are. And look at look at Hilton, uh, Hilton Grand, but look at Marriott. And, and, and pricing's been very resilient. Demand's remained very strong. I, I think Airbnb, uh, while their third quarter numbers were solid, uh, there's 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 a multiple here at some point. Look, the best name in the space is Bookings. Uh, Bookings trades at around 18 times forward. They're they're actually they're all, you know, so rentals uh, business in addition to lodging is growing very fast and obviously higher margin for them. Uh, they are the largest player in, in the world in terms of bookings uh, per room per night, I would say by a significant margin. So um, airlines, I, I think, are getting uh, a tailwind here, sorry, for uh, the, what's going on in energy because they didn't get credit uh, on the reopening side and when their pricing was holding up. Prices are, are starting to come under some pressure. But again, I continue to like airlines here. Expedia, by the way, also got a downgrade from the same analyst. And he says, if you believe a recession is around the corner or coming, um, then you should be out of Expedia or you should be careful with Expedia and booking because they both lost 60 percent in the last recession. Makes a lot. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's funny that Tim mentioned Delta because it's rallied now 30 percent from that recent low. But he's right in indicating that these are great trading stocks. And all those things you said are probably true. But it doesn't mean that Delta can't rally another 15 percent from here, which would probably make sense given the context of this range we've been in for quite some time. Yeah. Rebecca, what do you think about the consumer? Pent up travel spending is almost over. Well, it's interesting. Bank of America had an analyst on your air this morning who was talking about what they're seeing from all their consumer data and basically consumers moderating, but at the margin and where they are spending, it is increasingly experiences. Right. So the hotels, the flights, and it doesn't mean the stock is going to move exactly with that. But from a macro perspective, moderation in spending, but still pretty resilient. And until that changes, I think, and they're focused on services, this holds up. Coming up, Boeing flying higher on a big delivery win. Is it clear skies ahead for the manufacturer? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Boeing hitting their highest level since June of 2021. Today, the stock eking out again after reporting November deliveries that put the company closer to meeting its 2023 targets. Phil LeBeau has the details. Hey, Phil. Hey, you can really see the momentum, Melissa, that Boeing has enjoyed over the last several weeks. They've notched a number of significant orders. Those are reflected in what we see for November. The company logging 104 airplane orders for the month of November. Their net orders year to date 
945. They're easily going to top uh, 1,000. That is the expectation at this point. Deliveries, 56 airplanes. Most importantly, the bulk of those being 737 Maxes. By the way, the company is on track essentially to hit the guidance, its lowered guidance of delivering uh, the number of maxes that it said it would deliver this year, as well as for the number of Dreamliners. The total number of aircraft and backlog now at 5,324. And Melissa, the momentum that you're seeing with Boeing right now, a lot of people are saying, yeah, it's not only because of the orders that they've logged, it's the potential for China, perhaps within the next couple of weeks, to say, you know what? We're ready to accept deliveries once again. There's no indication of when China will do this, but the pressure is building, Melissa, because there's so much demand and traffic has grown so much in China. They need the airplanes. And that's why many on Wall Street are saying at some point here, China will say we're ready to take deliveries again. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. Tammy, think that happens given the relationship between the U.S. and China these days? I'm not sure. And there's plenty to talk about how that relationship's getting worse. And, and, uh, you know, we've had a lot of conversations in the semiconductor space, even in the last 24 hours. I I think the recovery of the max in the order book and again, 45 delivered in in November versus 32 a year ago is the story. Um, But max certification uh, plus just reopening dynamics get this company to 15 bucks uh, of free cash flow a share probably by next year, which is the story for moving the share price higher. So I've been long. I've been patient. It's been frustrating. Uh, but this company, uh, there are it's an oligopoly, right? It's a duopoly, I should say. Excuse me. Uh, there's not a lot of places to go. Whether the Chinese come back or not, there's plenty of other folks in the order book. Uh, and the max is really the key, even though it's not the most profitable uh, of the airlines they produce uh, of, the, of the bodies. But I think ultimately this is part of the story. I agree with Tim that, you know, China's going to have to buy them from somewhere. They're going to need a lot of planes. And Boeing said for the next 20 years, Chinese demand is is 20 percent of all the plane demand, all the plane purchases. They're a big player here. But we know that there's bipartisan support in Congress. There's new stuff coming out right now as we speak to try to tighten the screws between the U.S. and China. And so I think there is a risk that China might retaliate and say, no, Boeing's, thank you. Up next, final trades. Final trade time, Rebecca Patterson. I want to short the euro. The ECB is going to cut faster than the Fed. Growth is going to disappoint next year. You're just not going to see a lot of capital going to Europe, especially, unfortunately, if the war continues. Tim Seymour. I like bookings uh, multiple. Also, their ad spend is their ad cost is coming down. Their margins are going higher. Uh, Bookings. Karen. Yes. First, I got to say happy birthday to my brother, Mark, before I forget. Heart of gold. Um, and IBV, Tim mentioned it earlier. That is my final trade. Happy birthday, Mark. Guy. Happy birthday. Another Finneman birthday up. He's a big fan of the show, as you know. IBM, okay. Mel. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries 
libraries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.